Welcome to the Standing Up to Pots podcast, otherwise known as the Potscast. This podcast is dedicated to educating and empowering the community about postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, commonly referred to as POTS. This invisible illness impacts millions and we are committed to explaining the basics, raising awareness, exploring the research, and empowering patients to not only survive, but thrive. This is the Standing Up to POTS podcast. Hello, fellow POTS patients and wonderful people who care about POTS patients. I'm Jill Brooke, your horizontal host, and today we have an episode of the POTS Diaries, where we get to know someone in the POTS community and hear their story. So today we are speaking with Diane Ketty, who is a registered dietitian, so I'm especially excited to hear about some of her nutritional adventures with POTS, but she has kindly volunteered to share her story so that the rest of us might benefit. Diane, thank you so much for being with us today. Of course, my pleasure. So let's start with some basics. What's your age? Where are you? And what are some things we should know about Diane? So I'll be 60 in July. So I think I'm one of the older potsies around, seems like in the groups. I'm currently living in Eastern Washington where my husband and I moved to be six years in May to retire and also to improve my POTS symptoms. So it was a deliberate, well-researched, thought-out move. And currently I am like I said, retired. I retired in December and I'm just doing community service and working on my health and enjoying being retired. Wonderful. And if we were to ask your friends and family to describe your personality, what would they say? I think they would say I'm extroverted. I'm a good resource because I'm always helping them with their medical problems. And they might say occasionally I'm a little bit bossy. <laughs> which has kind of been my temperament my whole life. So I don't think anybody would be surprised by that. And that's okay. Okay, can we ask you to brag for a moment and tell us something that you're good at? Oh, I love photography. One of the reasons we moved to Eastern Washington is I wanted more time to do photography. So I have an Instagram page and I post my photos there. I'm also good at community service. I do several things in my community that I volunteer for that I have natural skills at. And I feel like that gives me purpose and has replaced my work. You know, before I forget, can I ask you a little more about your move? Because you said that you had moved and you had very well researched a move to have your pots feel better. Do you mind telling us where you moved from and where you moved to and why? Absolutely. So I grew up in Huntington Beach, California, and I was living there until 2016 when we moved. And the humidity was really bothering me. And one day I went to see my rheumatologist because my feet were really swollen. And I thought, gosh, I, don't, I hope I don't have rheumatoid arthritis. And he said to me, oh no, this isn't RA, this is bursitis from the heat and humidity. So I said to him, so you're telling me if I move to the desert, it will go away? And he said, yes. And that was the day I went home and told my husband, we're moving. Because at that point, my quality of life was so low with having to work full time as a POTS patient, and then also being in chronic pain, I just decided it wasn't worth it. And I've always wanted to live in the Pacific Northwest and I've always wanted to live in the desert. So the other factor was barometric pressure changes with migraines. I've had migraines for 30 years and I had this theory that getting away from the beach would help and it has. So currently I live in Southeastern Washington in the Tri-Cities where it's dry and we don't have a lot of barometric pressure changes like we had in California. And the summer is hot, but it's a dry heat. And actually I do much better in dry heat. Great, so you got it right the first time. I'm a little envious because I moved like four or five times for POTS and mast cell activation <laughs> syndrome, and I did not get it right the first few times. So that was a lot of work and a lot of expense. So kudos. 
I did research it a lot, like I told you. So there was, it took me a year to figure it out. Mm -hmm. So can we have you kind of go back and give us a snapshot of what your life looked like before POTS entered your world? Absolutely. So my first memory, which is very interesting, is of having heat stroke at age five in the valley, the San Fernando Valley, and vomiting. So my first memory is me throwing up and being too hot which looking back, those were POTS symptoms, dysautonomia symptoms. So that was my first memory. And then at age 16, I passed out in the shower. And looking back, I realized that's when I started having neurocardiogenic syncope, another form of dysautonomia related to POTS. So for most of my young adult life, I just suffered with that. I basically learned to control my triggers. I was able to abort most of the episodes, but I was always at risk for passing out. And my blood pressure was low. It was like 95 over 58. And then in my 30s, I started having autoimmune problems and I started having heart palpitations, arrhythmias, Hashimoto's, premature ovarian failure. I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia, lupus, and I believe that was all from working too much. Looking back, if I could redo that, I would, but hindsight's twenty twenty. Yeah, don't go there. Don't go there. It's bad for your psychology. <laughs> no, but I do share that with my patients that, you know, just because you can doesn't mean you should. So just because I had a lot of energy and I worked four jobs doesn't mean I should have done that because I believe that turned on my autoimmune genes was working too much. So I didn't know that at the time, but I had several autoimmune diagnoses. And then uh, I started having gut issues in my 30s as well. One thing that was helpful was I went gluten free when I turned 40 because I had a patient who went gluten free and her symptoms got a lot better. Happy birthday. So that's how you rewarded yourself on your phone. Yes, yes, exactly. So even though there wasn't a lot of mainstream research out yet about it, there was a lot of naturopathic people that were doing that. And so I decided to try it for myself. And it really helped me, helped my IBS and helped my inflammation. So that was my first intervention I did on myself was I put myself on a gluten-free diet. And obviously it worked or I would have quit doing it. Can I just ask, because I know there's a lot of people listening right now who are thinking that they're interested in trying the same thing. How long did it take for you to notice a difference? Oh, I did it gradually. So I would probably say three to six months. Definitely not immediate. Oh, well, it helped my gut immediately, but the longer term effects took probably three to six months because I did it gradually, which is what I recommend when I had patients. I would tell them, do this over six months. You don't have to do it in a week. Don't stress yourself out about it. So I did it gradually. And so that's kind of the first intervention I did on myself that helped. And then I also started taking fish oil, which I often recommend to my friends who have arthritis or any kind of chronic pain because it's an NSAID, but it doesn't have the negative side effects of NSAIDs. But I was taking a high dose around 3000 to 4500 milligrams of EPA and DHA per day, which is quite high, but it works very well at controlling inflammation. And really, that's the only thing I did for my pain for many years was take fish oil. Oh, wow. And that was enough to do it. It was. And then I also was diagnosed with vitamin D deficiency at the same time and corrected that, which also can cause muscle pain and fatigue. So I started taking vitamin D, fish oil, and that was kind of it for supplements at the time. I, I know our listeners know this, but I'm just going to say, hey, everybody, you know, this is not medical or nutrition advice. Talk to your nutritionist or doctor. Diane is a professional who knows herself very well, but there are, there are some downsides or risks to all these things. So yes. don't just run out and start doing three grams of fish oil a day without talking to somebody. Thank you, Jill. I was going to add that at the end, but I appreciate that. And also, I don't know their history. I know my history, but I don't know your listeners' histories. Well, I know if I were listening to you right now, 
and thinking, oh, that much fish oil made your pain go away. I'm going to order some right now. I understand that. I understand that. And I appreciate that. But the reason I wanted to mention it is most mainstream doctors don't know that. And I found it myself by reading the research and thought, well, I'm going to try this. It seems like a benign intervention. And it was. But yes, there are some risks to fish oil if you take high dose. So I would recommend they consult with their physician or a nutritionist about it first. Cool. And okay, so what else did you try? So then kind of what happened was in my 40s, I was referred a POTS patient. And when I looked at this person's history, I realized I had all the symptoms that she did. And of course, I did a little bit with her, referred her to a physician who I ended up seeing, a cardiologist, for care. And then kind of put tucked that away in the back of my head, like, gosh, I have a lot of those symptoms. Okay. And then what happened was at about 45, I got diagnosed with high blood pressure for the first time, which runs Oh, in my so family, it went from quite low to, to high. high. Yes, which is all of a sudden, no explanation. In fact, when I came home from the doctor, my wonderful husband said to me, why do you have high blood pressure? Because he, in his mm -hmm. mind, I'm the healthiest person he knows. And he's like, I said, well, it's genetic. It's on both sides of my family. So I didn't really think much about it, knowing it was genetic on both sides. I just figured I'll just take some blood pressure medicine because I was already very healthy. So it wasn't like I could like change my diet, exercise more. I could have worked on stress, of course, but that was it. So I took the medicine and I could only tolerate a beta blocker, which I found interesting looking back on, on hindsight that all the other meds made me really sick. So the beta blocker worked well until I was 48. And that's when I had my first POTS episode. So while I had the neurocardiogenic syncope starting at age 16, it really wasn't until 48 that I got pretty sick. Oh, that was like your cherry on the Sunday, it sounds like. Oof. Yeah, and it was, it was lovely. Really what happened was I had been laying in bed all day. I wasn't feeling good. I had lost about 10 pounds, which of course I was happy about, not realizing it's because my kidneys weren't working. And so my urine was clear all the time. It looked like water. And I went, my husband said, I want you to call your doctor because I was having an episode of not being able to talk and not being able to understand language. So I called my cardiologist. He said, you're having neurological symptoms. I want you to go to the ER. I really didn't want to go. My husband made me. And then in the ER, they said I'd had a TIA, which is a transient ischemic attack, which is like a mini stroke. So fortunately, while I was in the MRI machine, the doctor called my migraine doctor and he said, no, she's probably having a migraine variant. Let her go home because he wanted me to spend the night, which I had no interest in doing. So I saw my neurologist the next day and he goes, no, I think you had a migraine variant. So the problem is it never went away, right? So by definition, a migraine variant is only supposed to last a couple of days. Well, this went on for a couple of weeks. So my friend who's a physician said to me, wow, that's one heck of a migraine you had. And it gave me the idea of, well, maybe it's not a migraine. So I started looking, researching it, and sure enough, POTS came up. So then I printed out the symptoms. I had all of them. Took them to my rheumatologist who said, yes, I think you have this. And you might have to go to the Cleveland Clinic. And I said, I'm not going anywhere. Because I had an endocrinologist, a cardiologist, and a fantastic rheumatologist. We all worked together. We cross-referred. They knew me. I said, the four of us are going to figure this out. And fortunately, because I know you ask your, your interviewees this a lot, no one ever told me I was crazy. I feel really fortunate that none of my doctors doubted anything I told them because they knew me before I had it. And we got, I really got diagnosed relatively quickly. And so I had the tilt table test, which confirmed it. And then I had an ACTH stimulation test by my endocrinologist, which confirmed I had aldosterone deficiency. So he put me on Florineth, the wonder drug. And then we went from there. My cardiologist gave me propranolol. So that was my initial treatment for POTS were those three things. So can I ask how much did treating the POTS help all the other stuff that you had never before potentially associated with POTS? 
it helped pretty well, actually. My neurocardiogenic syncope got better. My headaches were still an issue, but not quite as bad. My fatigue got better. Florinif really helped me a lot. I call that my stand-up pill. Because if I miss Florinif, I cannot stand up. I'm pre-syncopal all day, like I'm going to pass out. If I stand more than 10 minutes, I have to sit down. So Florinif was a wonder drug for me. And I have to say, I found out about it by reading Lauren Stiles' blog, Pots Girl. So one of the things I came across during my research was Lauren's blog, and she talks about Florinif and how she got diagnosed. So that was actually very helpful to me, just kind of validating that, yes, this is probably what I have going on. So I continued taking those meds, kind of went along. I also used compression hose at the beginning. I wore pantyhose which, with a compression of 30 to 40, which is the highest. And while I hated them, they allowed me to work 12-hour days. So you kept working too hard. <laughs> Wait a second. Well, yes, but let me explain why. So my whole career, I used to see all my patients in two days, and then I would do paperwork on the other days. It just worked better for me from a flow standpoint. But the problem was, while I was able to do that, I spent every day in bed on the weekend. And so my husband, my wonderful husband of 32 years at that point began doing all of our grocery shopping, all the cleaning, because what I realized with POTS is going into a grocery store was not fun. And I'd almost passed out once in the market. And now that I had POTS, I understood why, that the lights, the temperature changes, all the stimulation was too much for my autonomic nervous system. And I would wanna get out of there after five minutes. So he took over doing all the grocery sh shopping, all the cleaning, and basically took care of me for several years. I was kind of bedridden on the weekends. I didn't do much socially. I really just kept doing my job, which I felt passionate about and it gave me a lot of pleasure. I really liked my having my own business. But then I got to a point where I said, wait a minute, life is more than this. And me working this much and not having energy to do anything else is not making me happy. And so that was the point where I decided we should move and retire and leave California, partly because of the cost, but also because of the weather things like that. So that's really, a, for me, a silver lining of having POTS was that it motivated me to change things in my life that made me much happier down the road. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is there any other example of that? Would you say it motivated you to change things? Oh, yes. The other thing that happened was when I moved to Eastern Washington, I became only treating POTS patients and patients with autoimmune disease. So for many years, I treated patients with eating disorders, some medical nutrition therapy, but mostly eating disorders and then some people with chronic illness. But what I decided to do was to really dedicate my practice to helping people with POTS because there weren't a lot of nutritionists who knew about it. And I happened to know everything about it because I had it. And also I had multiple autoimmune diseases. So I decided I want to help other people. Since I've helped myself, I want to help other people. So I had a very nice practice from 2016 until last year when I retired that was focused solely on POTS and autoimmune disease. And I really enjoyed that. So that also made me very happy that I was helping other patients and I got referred lots of POTS patients from all different places. Uh, so I was very busy. I never had to really look for clients. They just came to me. And then in 2014, before we left California, my physician ran an MTHFR test for me because I asked him to. And I had started reading some stuff about MTHFR and autoimmune diseases. And that's how I became interested. And I thought, well, my family history suggests I could have this gene. And that MTHFR is an acronym for methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, which is a gene and an enzyme. So I decided to test myself and sure enough, I came out homozygous, which means I have two mutations, one from each parent, and that was for C677. So that is the one that causes autoimmune diseases, heart issues, fatigue, blood clots, and many other things that I didn't have. 
So I'm just going to slow you down for one second, because I know this is all just secondhand to you, but to our listeners who might never have heard of this before, I just wanted to summarize and you tell me if I've got this right. Okay. But basically you decided to get a genetic test from your physician and you were looking at the MTHFR gene. And that is a gene that has several variants, some of which make you worse at methylating using certain nutrients and basically it is so responsible for so many important things in the body that the thinking is that if you have certain variants, it can it can mess you up in a lot of ways, right? Is that? That's a very good summary. Yes, I, that's excellent. And I apologize. I know I talk fast and it's, and you're right, this is second nature for me. So that's why I spelled out MTHFR. But to be honest, people just say MTHFR. No one says the whole thing because it's too much. So absolutely, about 30% of the population is homozygous for either C677 or 1298. So 30% of the population potentially could have problems from this. Now, does it mean for sure? No, because the gene has to turn on. So for example, I had a man I treated and he was kind of a natural type B person, not like us at all, naturally laid back and he lived in Italy. And so in Italy, their food is much healthier than here. They don't have glyphosate. They don't have as many pesticides that we do. And they also have a low gluten diet because there's so many people with celiac in Italy. Can you tell people what glyphosate is? Glyphosate is a pesticide, which is Roundup, which is used extensively in our country. They're about getting ready to pull it off the market finally, but it's been banned in Europe and Canada for decades. So it's not good. It's a, a toxin that turns on autoimmunity, we believe. And it's just something that your body has to get rid of that really we shouldn't be consuming. And so this man who I treated though, even though he had the gene, he was perfectly healthy. So, and there's labs you can do to assess these things. And so I was able to say to him, yes, you have this gene, but you're perfectly healthy. Don't worry about it, go live your life. I didn't see that very often though. Most of my patients had significant issues when they came in. They had chronic fatigue, they had POTS, they had lupus, they had autoimmune diseases, they had ADHD, and they were clearly being affected by it. So, at that point, back in 2014, after I treated myself and did a bunch of research, I started treating my patients for it. And it was very satisfying work to do because I would have them do a test through 23andMe or through their doctor. I would analyze the results for them. I would do some labs along with it because you never just look at genetics. You have to look at labs and symptoms and clinical information. So looking at all of that, I was able to say, okay, I think this will help you. And that would be things like certain supplements, if looking at their methylation pathways, I could say you have a block here and that's why you have low vitamin B6 in your blood because your body doesn't have the enzyme to make that process work properly. Right, so this is actually a really interesting topic. And since we have you, can I ask you to put your registered dietitian hat on? Sure. And maybe do a little more explaining of what these MTHFR variants can do, for example, to your B vitamins, for yeah. example. So B vitamins are one of the biggest things that are affected by MTHFR. So the MTHFR enzyme allows folate to be broken down properly. And also your homocysteine level is methionine gets converted to homocysteine. So your homocysteine level is properly managed if you have the pathway open. If you have a block in that pathway, you get an accumulation of homocysteine, which is pro-inflammatory and causes heart disease and strokes. And with the folate part also not going through, you get birth defects like spina bifida, Down syndrome, cleft palate that are linked to it. So the problem is that 
If you have MTHFR and you don't know it, and you're consuming a lot of folic acid, which we are in this country because all of our grains are enriched with folic acid, or you're taking vitamins that have folic acid, that prevents your body from using any folate at all, basically, because it binds up all the receptors. So then folate is involved in many different enzyme reactions in the body, many processes that involve digestion, inflammation, mood, brain chemistry. I mean, it's kind of involved in everything. Mm -hmm. So when you have problems in those pathways, you'll start to see symptoms like the things I've been listing out, depression, anxiety, autoimmune disease, birth defects, blood clots, and there's lists of things. And the other thing, Jill, that's very interesting about MTHFR is when I started looking at it back in 2014, there were 3,000 articles on PubMed, which is the medical research database that everyone uses. And now when you put an MTHFR, there's 8,000. So to me, that's very telling. And also, if you look at the articles, most of them are not being researched done in the US, they're being done overseas. So in other countries, there's a lot more interest than in the US. Well, and I've also heard some debate because some people argue that if if this was a real thing, then more people would have problems because they say, such a huge percentage of people have these variants. But what I think they are not necessarily thinking about is what you said, having the gene does not mean that it's turned on. Exactly. Well, and also you have to be homozygous. So only 30% of the population is homozygous. So that means one third of people are likely to be sick from it. 50% of people have one variant, which doesn't really usually make people sick. You really have to have the homozygous part, which is only 30%. But if you look at people that are chronically ill and you test them, a high percentage of them are homozygous. For a genetic pathway that can screw up so many things in your body, this actually has a somewhat fairly relatively simple fix, right? And maybe it doesn't fix it 100%, but can you talk about the changes you can make then things that might help undo all the problems? Absolutely. So the first thing is I'd recommend people do what's called a micronutrient test, which a nutritionist or registered dietitian can order for them. It's not something most physicians will order unless you go to a functional medicine provider. So they will order it. Mainstream medicine doctors don't know about it. But what it does is it tests all your vitamins and minerals in your blood. And so when I did my test, I had multiple deficiencies. I was actually very surprised that I had so many deficiencies. And then looking back on it, because I was eating a gluten-free diet, of course, I was missing some things because I wasn't eating enriched foods, but then also with MTHFR, my body couldn't get folate because I, I wasn't taking a supplement with it at the time. So I think that's the first step. There's another test called an organic acid test that I do. I used to do on my patients. I did it on myself. That gives you more information about how vitamins are being metabolized and if you have deficiencies. So really the first step is figuring out, do I have a deficiency since I'm at risk for one? It doesn't mean for sure I have it, but I might have it have a provider order the test for you. It's really important that you work with a provider when you're looking at this issue because self-treating is not a good option. It, it's very science biochemically based, it's complicated, and you really need someone that knows what they're doing because you don't want to just randomly start taking vitamins because you may not need them and they may not be in the right form. So people that have MTHFR generally need methylated vitamins because you're missing methyl groups when you have the MTHFR mutation. So you want to take like methyl B12, methylfolate, pyridoxin 5-phosphate, which is the, the form of B6 that's active. So you want to take the active forms of certain vitamins that will actually benefit you and make your brain fog better, give you more energy. And so I think sometimes when people go to providers who really don't know and they say, well, I tried it and it didn't work, 
my question back to them is what exactly did you take and did they do any testing on you? Because my favorite phrase is test, don't guess. So I always want to see test results before I'm going to recommend anything to a patient or friend. And just to clarify a little bit of what you were saying a minute ago about the different forms of the vitamins. Mm -hmm. So there's methylated versions and then there's versions where your body has to provide some ingredients to kind of let everything do what it's supposed to do. And so if you don't have the ability to do that, then sometimes you can just switch to a version of that vitamin supplement that does have everything there and that can take care of it, right? Is that kind of what Exactly. You're and you could correct your deficiency by taking a particular vitamin that has the right ingredients. And, you know, B12 is really involved in memory and energy. And when you look at POTS symptoms, a lot of these vitamins like riboflavin is involved in migraines. And one thing about when I moved, which was very interesting, is my migraines went away. I was really shocked by that. I didn't expect them to completely go away. But I think it's the combination of treating myself with vitamins, which I started in 2014, 2015, not having barometric pressure changes, having less stress. And I don't know what else, less pollution maybe, because we know toxins are not good for you. But I'm shocked. I, when I told my physician that I had gone to a chiropractor and that helped, he looked at me and he said, oh, no, I told him I was taking something homeopathic. And he goes, oh, that's a placebo. And I looked at him and I said, have you ever had a migraine? And he said, no. <laughs> I said, okay, then. Because anyone who has a migraine knows there is no placebo effect with a migraine, right? I mean, it doesn't just go away on it. So my migraines will last three days. And I used to take Imitrex many times a month to manage them. So I had significant migraines for many years. And so one of my favorite things about leaving California was that my migraines went away. Wow. And did you ever have a guess as to why? Yeah, I think it's a barometric pressure change issue, which we have way less of in the desert. I think it was less stress. I think it was treating my methylation issues, which all happened at the same time. And then I think going from working full-time to part-time helped a lot because I was just sitting less. And, you know, posture is very involved in migraines. And I was sitting at the computer and sitting in a chair talking to people. And so when I went from doing that full-time to part-time, basically I cut my work in half. I think it was all many factors. Like with POTS, we know many things affected. I think it was all those things that affected it. That's great. Okay, so of all of these things that you've done, like you have obviously done a lot, you have moved, you have done a lot to help manage this. What do you think helps you the most with managing your pots of everything? Okay, so I would say definitely the move. I wear sunglasses in stores because I'm light sensitive. I've had 10 retina surgeries unrelated to pots. I had a retinal detachment. So it was just something I did because I was very glare sensitive. But then I realized I also think that helped my migraines wearing sunglasses because light is a trigger, especially fluorescent light. So I wear sunglasses if I have to go in a store, like if I'm going to go shop at some at Macy's or somewhere. But if I wear sunglasses, I can tolerate it maybe an hour in there versus five or 10 minutes without. And then I really believe that Florinip and Propranolol helped me initially. And then when my blood pressure got high, I did get some, some scary spikes in around 2016 where I was up to like 170 over 90. And I researched it myself. So I believe I kind of shifted into hyperadrenergic pots at that point. And I had to go to three cardiologists before I could get one here to give me methyl dopa. They all said, I've never prescribed it before. And I said, well, it's the frontline drug for my condition. So I finally found one who gave it to me. And that was a game changer for me because my blood pressure went back down to normal, really, which has never been in my life. It's either been low or high. So the, the first time in my life, now I have normal blood pressure, which I monitor closely because strokes run in my family. And so that was a game changer. So I would say the meds, Florina, Propranolol, and Methyl Dopa. Also, Propranolol helps with migraines, which I didn't know. So if I get a headache and I take 10 milligrams of Propranolol, 
I don't get a migraine. Uh So that's part of it too. So like I said, multiple issues, multiple factors. And then my supplements I take every day. I take supplements at every meal that help me. And so I believe that's helped my energy, my ability to focus. I also like noon tablets, which are sodium, potassium, and magnesium. And so in particular, when I get lightheaded, which I still do at times where I get brain foggy, I'll look at my husband and I'll tell him, I need a tablet. And he knows that means I'm losing it mentally. He goes and gets me the tablet. He puts it in my water or I get it myself, depending on how bad I am. But it's like a, a, it's like a spark for my brain. It wakes up my brain because I don't use any caffeine. I don't drink any alcohol. I use no caffeine in my diet. Okay, Noon, if you want to sponsor us, there's your... <laughs> noon tablets. Come on, people. <laughs> there's your advertisement. Okay, so now that you have finally retired and you're not working so hard, what do you enjoy doing? What are your favorite activities these days? So I enjoy going out in nature. We live on a park and I look at squirrels and trees all day long. So I love to walk. I walk every day. I do stretching and yoga every day. I do some Pilates every day. I had to learn to balance my exercise. And I think it's so interesting that when most POTS patients were diagnosed, they were in the best shape of their life. And that was true for me. When I got diagnosed with POTS, I was doing about an hour and a half of exercise a day, cardio and Pilates combined. And I have this theory, Jill, that I think we push our bodies too hard. As POTS patients, we tend to be type A, we tend to be athletic or you know physically fit, high achieving. And I just think at some point your body goes, hey, forget, forget it, I'm done. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm cautious with exercise now, and I've had to do that with my former patients as well, just tell them, you know, you need to be careful with exercise just because you can go do something. What happens after that? Do you crash? Are you out for two days? You really need to look at that. So I'm always balancing my activity and also pacing myself is very helpful. So I do my calendar a month in advance. And so I found out I have a fourth cousin who lives here and I messaged him. I said, Hey, you want to get together for coffee? He goes, yeah, I'm free Friday. I said, oh no, I mean like in two and a half weeks. (laughs) And he messaged me back and goes, are you that busy? I said, no, I have a chronic illness. Okay. So I just constantly manage my schedule. Like I, I make sure if I have a busy day, I have a rest day, busy day, rest day. That works for me. And I always get burned. If I think to myself, I can do that. I can go to a concert and the Mm -hmm. next day I can go have lunch with my friends. No, it never works. So mm-hmm. I feel like it's taken me almost being 60 to realize it's not changing. Mm-hmm. My body is like, yes, you can do this, but you got to rest the next day. So that's annoying. I find that annoying because in my 20s, I could do whatever I wanted. Mm-hmm. And I did. And so I, for me, the hardest thing about pause, which really, I think it makes the most sense is that it's having to pace myself. Mm-hmm. And because I have a lot of things I would like to do. Like I told you, I like photography. I like to go to concerts. We have, we live in a town where there's free concerts all summer long. I have community service I do that I really enjoy. I have a lot of interests, actually. I have a whole list of volunteer jobs I would like to do, but I'm only doing two. Mm -hmm. Because if I did 10, I would be bedridden probably on the weekends, you know? So it's that constant pacing and telling myself that you still have to limit what you're doing. So has that made you very good at stripping away everything that doesn't rise to a top priority? Yes. Like, What kinds of things did you get rid of in your life because they were just energy sucks. Okay. So I would say certain people, um, if I had people that were had a lot of drama in their lives, I just decided I'm going to not have as much contact with them. I would say things like grocery shopping. My husband took that over happily. So the fact that I don't have to grocery shop, I don't have to clean the house. Those would really suck my energy. Mm -hmm. So physical things. And then 
I guess I'm cautious about committing to anything. In the old days, before I got POTS, people would ask me, oh, you want to give this talk here? You want to do this? I said yes to everything. And then I realized, no, I can't do that anymore. So even if it's a volunteer position and someone asks me, like with this place I'm volunteering, they keep asking me if I want to be the director because she resigned. I keep telling them no, because I'm really working on not overcommitting myself. And yet they keep asking me and I keep telling them no. So I guess just doing things that I really enjoy, like my volunteer work, my photography, being outdoors, I guess really realizing that, you know, kind of like doing my bucket list things too. So day to day, making sure I don't do too much, making sure I do self-care like meditation. I do four, seven, eight breathing, which is a type of breathing that engages your parasympathetic nervous system every day. And then just really like prioritizing, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go that I haven't been? Which we're starting to work on now that I'm retired, places I can travel to just locally. I'm not going to Europe or anything, but you know, just things I've always wanted to do, like go see Palouse Falls. I did that last year. I had, there's this little town called Bickleton where they have bluebirds in the spring. I want to go do that and take pictures of the bluebirds. So they're pretty simple things, but things I never had time for in California because I was working or I was in bed tired. Mm -hmm. So can I ask if you were to imagine your past self at your very worst in terms of pots, and I say that because we probably have some listeners out there who right now are having their absolute toughest time of it. What would you say now to that version of yourself? Like now that you have more time and more experience and more perspective, do you have any words to that POTS patient who might be at the toughest point of it? I do, because I, like I told you, at one point I was quite ill. I thought I was having TIAs, which I was not. So I would say don't give up. There is treatment, and I know it's hard to find good treatment for POTS. I know that because I've helped my patients try to find treatment. And we have an illness that we still don't know a lot about, really. I mean, they don't really know that much about dysautonomia. So I would say, don't give up. Try to find good resources where you live. I was fortunate. I had really good doctors that were smart who worked with me and I could talk to them like I was their peer, right? I would say to them, I think this. And I'd say, okay, what do you want me to do? So that's a big hurdle for, pe for people. I think it's just finding competent practitioners. So I would say, look wherever I'm sure you have resources you'll provide for people to find good practitioners who understand POTS and understand how to treat it and aren't going to tell people, oh, you're crazy or it's anxiety, which makes me crazy when people say that to people. And then also just to take little steps. Like when I would work with my patients, I would have them do little things at a time. Like don't get too big with your goals because it's overwhelming. And it took me a long time to get where I'm at. I mean, I'm 60 years old and I've had POTS for 12 years. So this is the best I've been, but it took me 12 years to get here, like to figure out I should work part-time, not full-time, which meant leaving California because we couldn't afford for me to work part-time in California. So it was a financial decision as well, because I realized working full-time is no quality of life for me. Mm -hmm. So I was willing to leave California, go to a different place. And I'm just, I think I got lucky to be honest with that, that my first place I picked was a good choice. Mm -hmm. Granted, I spent a year researching it, but I think there was luck involved. So that, and then I also think we, we, we stress too much. Looking back, I realized how crazy I was when I was younger, work doing all those jobs was crazy. So that's why I like the phrase, just because you can, doesn't mean you should. I was offered jobs and I kept taking them because I figured, well, I have the energy, why not? But it really did not serve me well in the long run. Mm -hmm. And then also I think spirituality is helpful. It's helpful for me. I think having supportive people in your life, if someone is not supportive of you, I honestly would limit contact. Mm -hmm. And and so many of our POTS patients don't have supportive people. And I feel very bad for them that 
you know, if you don't have a supportive partner, what does that mean? It means you're with someone who's making you worse every day, mm-hmm. which I fortunately have never experienced. My husband's always been very supportive and helped me. Yeah. And, you know, back to something you said right at the beginning of our conversation about things that can turn on or off genes. And we know that stress is a big one and there's nothing more stressful than being in a relationship 24-7 that is unsupportive or stressful or that has tension. It all ties back. It does. It does. And really, when you research it, for me, the MTHFR was like light bulbs coming on. When I realized I had that, I thought, oh, well, no wonder I've had this, this, and this diagnosis. And then when I figured out, then I did my testing and I had deficiencies and I started treating it, I thought, oh, well, this is pretty straightforward, right? And actually, I was kind of upset that none of my mainstream doctors had ever mentioned it to me, except for the one who ordered the test, my rheumatologist. But the rest of them, it wasn't even on their radar. So I, I find that disappointing that more Western med doctors aren't aware of it and they minimize it. And it's because, here's my, here's my theory as to why, there's really no medicine they can give you for it. It's, it's all nutrition and vitamins, which they don't make any money from that. So I feel like they should be more interested in it and they should read the research. The research is there. They're just not reading it. It tends to be in nutrition journals, not in the medicine journals. So functional medicine practitioners do know about it. So that's why I always encourage my clients, even if you have to take a loan out, if you get a referral to a good practitioner, it will usually improve your quality of life because they don't often take insurance. Some do. At least in California, they don't. I'm not sure about other states. But, you know, looking at you as a whole person, which I've done my whole career, and looking for root causes, I think is really important. Right. So that's a good point that probably the only doctors who are going to be able to take enough time with you to figure that out are not going to be able to make a living on insurance reimbursements. Especially not in California, for sure. Yeah. So that's all wonderful information. Can we now ask your poor brain to do a speed round? Oh, gosh. Okay, I'll do my best. Go ahead. (laughs) Okay, perfect. What is your favorite way to get salt? Noon tablets. What is the drink that you find the most hydrating? Water with a noon tablet in it. What is your favorite time of day and why? Evening, because I find in the morning I'm very brain foggy. And I think most POTS patients tell me this. They've told me this when I worked with them. I like evening. I'm a night owl. So I generally don't go to bed before midnight. I know that's not great. And I've actually told my patients not to do that. But honestly, I enjoy the evening. I feel better at night. I think it just takes a while for my body to get all that stuff together for to actually feel good. Yeah, I get it. When you're finally feeling good, you're not like, oh, I don't want to end the day now. No, no. Okay, next question. Where is your favorite spot to spend time and why? I like to be by the Columbia River, which is about 10 minutes from where I live because I can sit on a bench. It's very calm. Some days it's calm and glassy. Other days there's waves, but there's always birds. There's people, not a lot of people. And by the way, I live in a town, which is a small rural town where you can go on a weekend and park your car and not have to pay to park. And it's not that busy. So I really value that. So if you've ever lived in California, that sounds amazing. Yes, it is. So my husband and I, we walk at the river. We sit on a bench. We, I stare at the river. It's so calming for my brain. It's almost like meditative. So for me, it's being near water, but not the water in California at the beach, which was crazy, but the river here, which can be actually peaceful and very few people around. Great. What is one word that describes what it's like living with a chronic illness? One word. I would say pain because I feel like it's emotional and physical pain both. 
Mm -hmm. What is some good advice anyone ever gave you about anything? My physician in my 30s, who was my internist, told me I had to quit two of my jobs because I was <laughs> teaching at two universities. I had my own business and I worked at a residential treatment program. And he said to me, you have maxed out your body. And this was just when I had gut issues. All I had going on was my gut, my autoimmune stuff. He's like, you need to quit two of your jobs. And I did. And then I realized that's when I started realizing I'm working too much. And just because I can doesn't mean I should. So that was a profound effect in my life. And I told him that actually before I moved because I wanted him to know that please keep doing that with your patients that are crazy like me, because that was a turning point when I realized I can't keep doing this. And I don't know if I would have, I think it would have taken me a while to figure that myself. Mm -hmm. So what is something small or inexpensive that brings you comfort or joy? Well, I'd like to say my cat, but he's expensive because he's sick. <laughs> so I would say my cat minus the vet bills, but I love animals. And I'm actually thinking about volunteering for a small animal rescue here at some point. But I love, always love my pets. We always have rescues in our lives. And just going for a walk and looking at the squirrels in the park. It doesn't take a lot to make me happy. But nature, like we have clean air up here. There's no smog. And so looking at the blue sky, which you can see every day unless it's cloudy, and smelling nature and not smelling pollution or all the smells that are, are go with living in a large population area. Yeah. Who is somebody that you admire? I admire Dr. Afrin because I feel like he has devoted his career and his life to helping mast cell patients. And I should mention, I don't have huge mast cell issues. And I feel like that's another reason why I do better than a lot of POTS patients. I did have them when I started at age 12, I had allergies. So I, I started H1 blockers, which is an antihistamine. And then in my 20s, I went on H2 blockers and I've been on those my whole life. So I think that has prevented my mast cell issues from getting really bad. But I respect Dr. Afrin because of the work he does. And because initially doctors did not believe him, they basically called him a quack. And now there's all this research coming out that show, is showing that he knows what he's talking about. So I just respect him because he, he didn't give up on chronic illness. He kept working in that area. Amen. That's great. Okay. What is something that you're proud of? I'm proud of the work I've done with my patients in the last 30 years. I know I've helped a lot of patients. They keep in touch with me. You know, I'm proud that I was able to give people a better quality of life, whether it was from an eating disorder or chronic illness, autoimmune disease, POTS, MTHFR issues. I know that I help patients because my patients are very appreciative. And that's one thing I liked about working with chronic illness patients is they were very kind and appreciative. And so I enjoyed that. That's why I decided to focus on that population when I moved here. Great. What is the toughest thing about POTS? I would say just not feeling good most days of the week. You know, when I have a good day, like this weekend, I felt good. It was sunny. I told my husband, we have to be outside. So because I live in the Pacific Northwest and it is cloudy here, it's not like Seattle and it does not rain a lot in the desert, which many people don't know that. Most of Washington is not like Seattle. So don't be thinking that because I would not live in Seattle. That would not be good for me. But when it's sunny out and if I feel good, I want to go do stuff. So I do. But honestly, a lot of days I, do, I have to be in my recliner part of the day. And my recliner, by the way, I have a totally adjustable recliner, which really has helped my back pain. I also have fibromyalgia and I spend part of every day in the recliner. And so I just vary that depending on how I'm feeling physically. Great. What is an activity you can enjoy even when you're at your most potsy? Oh, reading research on the internet. I do still read a lot of research and I love to read research and I can open up my iPad, enlarge the print since I do have vision issues, and I can just go into PubMed and read the latest on anything I'm interested in, eye issues, MTHFR, autoimmune disease. I really enjoy reading research. 
Great. Okay. I just have a couple more questions. What is something that you are grateful for? My husband. He has been supportive of me from the beginning. When we got married, I was not sick. I was got married in my late 20s. I was still healthy. And I kind of feel like he got a bad deal. But he's the most loving and helpful person and always encourages me. Like, I'll say, well, I think you should go to the doctor. And I'll tell him, no, I don't want to. Because that <laughs> runs in my family. And he'll say, no, I want you to go. And so he'll drive me anywhere. I have a couple of doctors I see here where I drive two and a half hours one way to see the doctor. It's my retina specialist. I drive to Spokane for some other things, which is about two and a half hours. So he just drops everything and does anything for me. If I have an eye emergency, which I've had many in the past, we have to get in the car and go to, to Wenatchee immediately. And he manages all of that. Oh, shout out to all of the supportive partners out there. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, so my last question is, what do you wish more people knew about POTS? I wish that more people knew that POTS is treatable. Um, I don't know that anyone ever gets their life back 100%. I don't believe that POTS is cured either. I know some people say that, and I always warn people, be cautious of providers that tell you that, because I don't know anyone who's been cured of POTS. I consider myself probably 80 to 90% better, but I'm not cured. So I wish people knew how to find providers that were helpful and who could actually help them. And I, I think we still need to work on that as a profession. I feel like we still don't have enough doctors available. We don't have enough nutritionists or dietitians available and just people that understand dysautonomia. So I feel like keep looking, don't give up and go to some of the resources, which I'm sure you'll include in the podcast where people can find providers. Yeah, yeah, there's not as many as we wish, but Diane, thank you so much for sharing your story and all of your insights and information with us. We really appreciate it. And I hope that you get to keep enjoying your retirement there in beautiful Washington. Thank you so much, Jill. I appreciate you having me on. And hey, listeners, remember, this is not medical, dental, spiritual, relationship, fashion, or menu advice. Consult your medical team about what's right for your POTS please consider subscribing because it helps us get found by more people like you. But thank you for listening. Remember, you're not alone. And please join us again soon. As a reminder, anything you hear on this podcast is not medical advice. Consult your healthcare team about what's right for you. This show is a production of Standing Up to Pots, which is a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can send us feedback or make a tax-deductible donation at www.standinguptopots.org. You can also engage with us on social media at the handle Standing Up to Pots. If you like what you heard today, please consider subscribing to our podcast and sharing it with your friends and family. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at www.thepotscast.com. Thanks for listening.